Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to another episode of the Comrade Cast. And today I've got a fresh look for you guys for a new fresh episode. As you can see, I, I did my semi-annual haircut for the day, uh, so I cut it nice and short, and then I'm going to let it grow up probably for the next five to six months and then get it cut again. And as you can see, I'm a little wet <laughs> today. I just finished bathing the kids, and usually I like to record first thing or right as the afternoon begins. But due to the way this week is going to work, things are very, very time constrained. I'm going to have to uh, record when I can. So I'm recording in the evening today and I just finished bathing my kids and they splashed me a bunch. I was hoping that it would evaporate before the time I started recording, but it hasn't. And I'm too lazy to change my shirt. So it'll just stay as is. And over time, it will evaporate. But today I want to begin this episode with a clip that just made me laugh so much. And this is from one of my favorite YouTubers out there, Aram Brown. So again, shout out to him. Well, he started an episode of his show off with a way that really resonated me because this is the way I feel every single time I start off an episode. Oh, hey guys, what's up? How are you? Oh, no response. Okay. 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 So that's how you're going to play it. Icy cold. Well done. Well done. Just cold silence. Anyway. Today, we have a very mixed bag of an episode. I'm going to start off good. It's going to get bad. I'm going to try and end it off good again. So today, it's finally time to talk about them. To talk about the thing that everybody has been talking about for the last little while, and even before that. And I haven't even brought this up on an episode yet. Buckle up and get ready, because today is officially the Aliens episode. So I don't have a lot of time, so let's just jump right into... <laughs> The aliens <laughs> this guy this picture i forgot that i had chosen this picture uh this is a uh, ai prompt um that i wrote the prompt is an extremely disturbing portrait of an alien um although i don't think it's that disturbing i do think it's a pretty cool portrait so we're going to talk about the big news that has dropped a little bit about my own wild speculation about aliens of course we're going to have that this is an aliens podcast you cannot have anything aliens related without wild speculation and then we'll end off talking about what we actually know about aliens or whatever they're calling them now, unidentified aerial phenomenon. I miss unidentified flying objects, but I guess the times change. So yeah, I guess they're called UAPs now. And when it comes to aliens, I'll put my heart on my sleeve here, guys. I am a believer in aliens. I believe they're out there, that the truth is out there. I think it's extremely likely that we're not alone in the universe. The odds are overwhelming when you look up at the sky and see the number of stars, potential galaxies out there. And honestly, if we don't eventually end up finding aliens and it turns out that we are alone in the universe, that will be pretty much the last nail in the coffin for me to just accept the fact that we're living in a simulation. I guess in theory, they could simulate the aliens too. It seems like a lot of work, <laughs> but we'll see. While I do believe in aliens, that is not so much what is at the matter at hand here. What we're going to be talking about is whether or not, given a lot of these revelations we have seen and heard, are aliens here on Earth now? Are we in contact with aliens? Is this like the big reveal that people have been waiting for? On those counts, uh, I am far, far more skeptical, and we will dig into that. I really do. I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. I want to believe. I want to believe so badly that the aliens are here and that we're in contact with them. But the fact of the matter is, is that I'm, I know 
that when you want to really believe something, this is the time that you got to put on the brakes and be like, okay, I got to be more skeptical about this. All right there, comrades, let's open up this can of worms and see what we got. Got a couple of videos we're going to go through here real quick. What we're talking about here, just so you guys are up to speed, this is a big congressional hearing, which happened recently. This is from July 27th. I believe the hearing itself happened on the 25th or the 26th. I can't remember for sure. Regardless, though, very recent. And a bunch of major revelations came out of this. But the main guy that we're going to be hearing from is a fellow by the name of David Gorch. And he is a former intelligence official, supposedly very high up in the U.S. government. So let us hear what he has to say. I could show that all... The circumstances surrounding you. We show that Democrats and Republicans in Congress can come together in a bipartisan way to cut through. Uh, I was informed in the course of my official duties of a multi-decade uh, UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program, uh, to which I was denied access to those additional read-ons when I uh, requested it. I made the decision, based on the data I collected, to report this information to my superior superiors and multiple inspectors general, and in effect becoming a whistleblower. As you know, I've suffered retaliation for my decision, uh, but I am hopeful that my actions will ultimately lead uh, to a positive outcome of uh, increased transparency. Have you faced any retaliation or reprisals for any of your testimony or anything on these lines? Yeah, uh, I have to be careful what I say in detail because there is an open uh, whistleblower reprisal investigation on my behalf, and I don't want to compromise that investigation by providing anything that may uh, help provide somebody information. But it was very brutal and uh, very unfortunate, some of the tactics they used to um, hurt me both professionally and, and personally, to be quite frank. I take it that you're arguing what we need is real transparency in a reporting system so we can get some clarity on what's going on out there because there are many pilots in your situation, um, but we should have a, a way of developing a system systematic inventory of all of such encounters. Is that right? Yes, and I think we need both transparency and the reporting. We have the reporting, but we need to make sure that information can be promulgated to commercial aviation as well as the rest of the populace. Well, what about you? What was your experience after you came forward? Well, uh, it's only been about two months or so, so I guess my experience has been you know, overwhelming support from uh, former colleagues of mine that have you know, privately messaged me, and, and I do appreciate that. Uh, but I, I do have knowledge of um, active planned uh, reprisal activity against myself and other colleagues, and it's very, very upsetting to me. Coming from where? Uh, certain senior leadership at previous agencies I was associated with. Unfortunately, that wasn't hugely informative. One thing I did forget to mention is that David Grich has two other gentlemen with him. One of them, I'm not sure if he was the guy who spoke, is the one who saw the instance of the famous Tic Tac craft. If you guys are familiar with this incident, it happened, I believe, about a decade ago, an instance of a Navy pilot seeing a ship which looked like a little Tic Tac, essentially like zipping around in a manner that would be completely incongruent with human technology. In any case, though, he's coming out he's, and he's making a lot of these big accusations. And he says that obviously he's put some of his own professional and personal safety on the line. But let us see. Let's look into some more clips here. And we shall see what else he has to say. In your sworn testimony, you state that the United States government 
has retrieved supposedly extraterrestrial spacecraft and other UAP-related artifacts. You go so far as to state that the U.S. is in possession of, quote, non-human spacecraft, end quote, and that some of these artifacts have circulated with defense contractors. Several other former military and intelligence officials have come forward with similar allegations, albeit in non-public settings. However, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, the director of AARO, previously testified before Congress that there has been, and I quote, no credible evidence thus far of extraterrestrial activity or of, quote, off-world technology brought to the attention of the office. To your knowledge, is that statement correct? It's not accurate. I believe Dr. Kirkpatrick um, mentioned he had about 30 individuals that have come to Arrow thus far. A few of those individuals have also come to Arrow that I also interviewed, okay. and I know what they provided Dr. Kirkpatrick and, and their team. Okay. I was able to evaluate okay. that I, information. Okay, I need to go on. Sure. But um, my understanding that this, his statement is accurate. Uh, came from a direct quote. And this contradiction is a perfect example of why we need to inject transparency into our government. So that one was a little bit more bombastic, I guess you could say. He straight up says that the statement, which we don't have alien technology, is inaccurate, straight up false. That's a pretty bold thing to say in front of Congress. We can be real here, like people have gone to Congress and lied their faces off all the time. I don't know, it's like putting, when you're putting everything out on the line like this in a professional sense, I if he is like full of shit, eventually people are going to find that he's full of shit, is my thing, right? So he's either like just going to ride the fame high as long as he can until people find out that he's just BSing or he's actually got something. So I've got one more clip here for you guys. This is him claiming that these findings go back as far as the 1930s and then i'm going to do a very brief kind of bullet points of some of the more explosive things that he said in this hearing there of actual evidence of extraterrestrial otherwise unexplained forms of intelligence and if so when do you think this first occurred uh, i like to use the term non-human i don't like to denote origin keeps the aperture open both scientifically right. uh, uh certainly uh, like i've dis discussed publicly uh previously 1930s so yeah, just really short clip saying that it's going back to the 1930s. We're going to come back to that and revisit that, what he's talking about. But very quickly here, just very five quick bullet points from, I believe this is what NBC News uh, did a pretty good summary of what had happened, the five most explosive things from this hearing. This is David Greer says, the government is absolutely in possession of UAPs. We got that when he said the whole non-possession of alien technology was false. Next here, he says non-human biologics were found at the crash site. So he is saying that obviously that there was someone piloting this craft, which crashed. And as a result, there were corpses, dead, dead beings in there that they have extracted or somehow, I, what, I don't know what they're going to do with them. Do they do like autopsies? I think that we're now we're doing the autopsies. Guess what aliens were reversing it. Now we're the ones autopsying you. 
But yeah, I don't know what the hell they're going to do with the bodies. But I guess, according to this guy, they do have them. Officials must establish a safe and transparent reporting process. That's not really that explosive. That's obvious. A stigma associated with sightings silences possible witnesses. This is true. And this is definitely something which needs to be broken. And then he has a UFO spotted accelerating at supersonic speeds. This is the Tic Tac craft. This was in 2014. It was a, longer than a decade ago. In any case, that was not the quote that I was hoping to get from this particular sighting. So here's some of the specifics about his claims about uh, UFOs landing in the 1930s. So let's delve into this a little bit here. Making some shocking revelations, Gersich, Gersich stated that a top-secret UFO, UFO retrieval program was run by the United States for decades, and he added that the Vatican was involved in the first-ever UFO crash, as per media reports. Gersich stated that the UFO's first recovery took place in Magnenta, Italy in 1933. He added that the UFO was in possession of Italian dictator Mussolini's government, until 1945, when America was tipped off to it by Pope Pius XII. So Pope is like, you know, man, get these, get these aliens out of here, guys. Mussolini was trying to dick around with them, trying to build some alien laser guns or something. Didn't work out, as you can see, via the Italians' performance in World War II. But yeah, it's, it's crazy stuff, right? The aliens landed in Italy, and Mussolini fascist dictator of Italy during World War II, Mussolini of all people, <laughs> was the guy who found the alien craft. And he he phoned up the Pope, says, hey, Popey, I got some aliens here, bud. You might want to rethink a lot of those religious doctrines of yours. Because, yeah, I don't know if the aliens are exactly followers of the Bible. But that being said, we're having a discussion about this. Like a lot of people thought it was like weird for the aliens to try and land in Italy or something like that and, and make contact with a religious institution, or maybe that's what they were potentially trying to do. I don't think it's that implausible. If you were an alien looking at our world, you might mistake the head of the world's largest religion as like the de facto leader of earth. But I guess that would assume that they weren't watching us for some time. I feel like they would probably watch us for a while before making contact, trying to figure out who all the major players are on the planet and what they do and what they think. But I don't know. And not only that, this guy has previously said that non-human intelligence is present on Earth and has acted with malevolence and even killed some humans. I think there's a logical fallacy that because they're advanced, they're kind. We'll never really understand their full intent because we're not them. But what appears to be malevolent activity has happened. And that's based on nuclear site probing activities and witness testimony. I was briefed by a few individuals on the program that there were malevolent events like that. So yeah, <laughs> the aliens have even killed humans, apparently. So now that we've unpacked this guy's claims... Let's go into some deeper analysis, if you will. And of course, wild speculation. For my end, personally, you know, I, I again, really want to believe a lot of what this guy is saying. But he didn't bring the receipts, guys. He didn't bring the receipts to this hearing. A lot of it is just hearsay, especially, right? Because a lot of this stuff is him telling us what other people have told them, which is the literal definition of hearsay, right? 
we got to taper our expectations here and remind ourselves that this guy didn't bring photos. He didn't bring video. Uh, he didn't bring any audio or anything like that. He just brought his word. And that's what we have to take for now. As much as I want to believe that the aliens are here and we're in contact with them, I just can't convince myself of it yet. There's still a few more things I think that need to happen before I can really convince myself that this is happening. I was joking around that I, I feel like I'll tell you guys the next game that I'm playing for review right now is Terra Invicta. If you guys have played XCOM, you'll know that this was the project that the Long War XCOM modders eventually decided to make their own game off of. And it's <laughs> it's quite dense. But the point here is, is that the whole premise of that game is that aliens have contacted Earth starts in late 2022 and you're trying to guess really like figure out what the aliens deal is are they good are they bad how do we fight them and the thing is like when the game starts just you and your factions like the various factions that you control know about the aliens but the general population does not know about the aliens and you have the option to reveal that the aliens exist to the public a couple of years down the road i was joking maybe terra invicta is just an actual simulation uh, just an actual simulator of our real life and uh, those guys had to figure it out they're just trying to get us prepared for the alien threat so if in 2024 2025 they announced that hey the aliens are here guys uh, we'll know that terra invicta was right all along all right now you yuppies get your beer bongs because we're gonna go in deep for some alien speculation now and i'm gonna speculate to you guys some of my own personal thoughts about aliens and some of the crazy theories that I've heard and discussed with people over my time on this planet. So my general feeling is if that the aliens were here, they wouldn't tell us right away. They would definitely hide it. They would probably cover it up until it was completely inescapable for everybody. Because obviously you're going to start a massive panic the instant that you tell people that yes, there are aliens and yes, they exist. And not only that, we're pretty unsure about their intentions. Their intentions seem pretty ambiguous. But over the years, guys, I've heard a lot of very interesting theories about um, aliens and their relationship to us and what exactly our status is. Like I said, I want to believe that they're here. But until I see like the actual firm evidence, I can't say that I actually do believe. Let me tell you guys some of the theories that I've heard. And I have my, the best theory about aliens I've ever heard comes from a buddy of mine. And this guy is, he's like a character. I, I want to see if I can get him on the podcast because he's like a character's character. And this guy, he is extremely intelligent, like whip smart, very focused, very committed, very articulate, but he is extremely eccentric. And, the, and he spends a lot of his time studying aliens, talking about aliens, doing research on aliens. And I know from what I'm about to say, it might not sound like he's uh, that smart of a guy, but yes, he is a very, very smart guy. Just happens to be extremely eccentric. So he's my aliens guy. He is the guy who uh, does the research and feeds me all the crazy theories about aliens. In fact, he even looks a bit like the ancient aliens guy, except his beard is longer. And his hair is shorter. So anyway, this guy has told me, again, the, what I think so far is the best explanation and most 
well thought out explanation of aliens on our world. So his theory is, is that basically aliens are in contact with us. They're in contact with the highest levels of our government. And unlike Gersich, what he postulates and what he believes is that the aliens have come to contact us after the atom bombs went off. That's how they found us. With the atom bombs going off, this is what registered on whatever equipment they have and allowed us to come to Earth. And at that point, that's when they made connections with our government and, and started telling everybody what's going on and that kind of stuff. But obviously, it's been kept secret for this entire time. But not only are the aliens here, they are actually on our side. They're friendly. They're good aliens. And what they're doing is they are testing us to see if we are ready to enter the Galactic Federation. And whenever they've de designated us as ready, I guess that's the time when they'll eventually reveal themselves to us and we'll, we'll know what's really going on. So the aliens are good and they have our back. In fact, one of the things which apparently the aliens have done for us is they actually prevented World War III somehow, some way. They managed to disable a nuclear bomb either mid-flight or before it launched or something like that and managed to avert World War III for us. Thank you, aliens. Thank you. So in addition to that, the aliens are on our world and they are, in, like I said, in contact with our government. And so far, we know of three actually different species, although we've only actually seen two of them with, with our own eyes. The first and most predominant species probably looks like our friend here. They're called the tall gray ones. They're a humanoid species. They are more slender than we are. And they're also taller. They're about five to eight feet taller. And they are the most predominant one. It's not five to eight. I think it's four to five feet taller. But they are the most predominant ones in our current world. They're the ones that do most of the talking and interaction with us. And then the second species, which we don't have as much communication with. I think they're more like supposed to be maybe like manual laborers or something. But they're like more your stereotypical, what you'd imagine, your little green men. They're shorter than us, squatter than us, and obviously have green skin, but they're still a humanoid form. And then the last sort of hitherto unknown species of aliens are, I think they're either a reptilian species or sort of a plant-based species. Again, we haven't seen them. We only know about them, apparently, from what the aliens have told us about them. And the reason that we probably haven't seen them is because our atmosphere is hostile to them in some way, shape, or form. So they, can't, so they can't exactly come and visit us. So I may have gotten some of the details wrong. Some of the details around a lot of these stories differ. But there are enough similar core truths. Because in this conversation I had with my pal where he detailed to me all the alien species, he also brought up and talked about a lot of these things that, get, uh, that our whistleblower brought up. Before I'd even heard of him. He was the first guy talking about this stuff. And all of a sudden this Gersich guy is coming out and talking about this stuff. So sometimes like when I, I think about that conversation I had, I think about it and sometimes I, I reflect on it and get an eerie feeling. And again, as much as I painfully want to believe that my friend is right and the aliens are out there and they have our backs until we have some sort of completely undeniable evidence, I have to maintain some sort of skepticism and agnosticism and questionability of what is really happening. 
So while I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't give you guys maybe some definite explanations of what's going on, hopefully I can give you guys a lot to think about, a lot to speculate on, and whether or not you've seen one of the tall gray ones in your lifetime. Alright, so enough speculation. What do we actually know about aliens? What is so far been actually confirmed by the government and is indisputable fact? Well... Unfortunately, really not much. The government has basically come out and said that, yes, there are unidentified aerial phenomenon. We have, we've been telling you guys going back since the 80s, and why haven't you guys been listening to us type of thing? We've been telling you guys the whole time what's happening. No, you haven't. But what the government has confirmed is that they have phenomenon that they have observed and witnessed and recorded, which they have no explanation for. They don't know if it's aliens. They don't know if it's another country. They don't know if it's some weird kooky billionaire who has invented these mystical pieces of technology. We don't know. And the government has said that they don't know either, which that is a little bit disconcerting in and of itself. Obviously, we can't jump to conclusions and say that these unidentified aerial phenomenon are for sure aliens, but the existential crisis remains. It's got to be something. If it's not aliens, then what is it? But I do think it is important to remember that the government has admitted to us that it has observed, again, things that they cannot explain and do not know why they existed. So while it may not be aliens, as they like to say, the truth is out there. All right, so now with our aliens out of the way, let us talk about the sadder discussion, the more depressing discussion of this episode that I want to talk to you guys about. And that is, unfortunately, things aren't looking real good for the global food supply. And this is something that people have been sounding the alarm on pretty much ever since the war in Ukraine has begun. Fortunately, in the past year and a half since the war has begun, we've been really able to avoid major food insecurities, thankfully due to things like the Black Sea grain deal, being able to continue to get grain out of Ukraine and into the Middle East and Africa, as well as other countries like India being able to keep up with its food production. However, things seem to be things seem to be changing right now and currently this year for the worse. As some of you probably know and have heard, Russia at the end of the month refused to extend the Ukrainian Black Sea grain deal. Excuse me, sorry, that was at the middle of the month. That was July 17th. They canceled the grain deal. And so effectively what this grain deal would do is just so you know, let's pull out the old, ye old coloring pens. It's been a while since I colored on the map. Why not? Okay, we'll make it green, or sorry, we'll make it yellow for grain. As most of you guys probably know, Ukraine is a massive exporter of wheat, fertilizer, and other foodstuffs. And almost all of these, all of these exports go through here, which is the port of Odessa. And they come down through Odessa, through Istanbul, through the Bosphorus, out into the Mediterranean. And then most of it goes to here in the Middle East, North Africa, then down through the Suez into Sub-Saharan Africa and beyond. 
However, since the start of the war, effectively, no one will give any type of insurance to ships traveling into the Black Sea because it is a war zone. So no ships will be insured. If anything happens to a ship that you're sending into the Black Sea, no one's going to pay for it. Because of that, no one is effectively willing to send ships into the Black Sea. And to get around that, Turkey, Russia, Ukraine, and the United Nations worked on a deal which would allow Ukrainian grain to be exported through Odessa out into the wider world, despite the fact that the Russians pretty much have the Black Sea totally in lockdown and completely in their control right now. And this deal, which lasted about a year, again, allowed us to avoid a lot of the calamitous predictions in regards to famine and massive food price increases and all that horrible stuff. So one thing that also happened last year is that India actually stopped exporting their own grain. They put a hold on exporting of their own grain. And this was in response to the war. Effectively, they were worried about their own food security. So they halted their own exports of grain. And as a result, driving up the prices throughout the region. But now India this year has gone and taken it a step further. So if you guys can remember back to the episode we did on India, India's report card, you'll remember that India is a huge exporter of food. It is one of the world's uh, largest bread baskets. They export tons of rice. They used to export grain, not so much. Uh, and of course, they have other types of foodstuffs, lentils, chickpeas, other types of beans, those kind of stuff. A lot of those other kinds of things are grown in India as well. And India, despite being a population of 1.5 billion people, is still able to export tons of food uh, throughout the rest of the world. Unfortunately, it seems like things are taking a squeeze even on India itself. As we talked about, they cut off grain shipments from India last year. I'm going to draw a little grain for you guys. Grain. That's gone. No more. No more grain. That's gone. And then, and then this year, they just announced that they are postponing the export of all non-Basmati rice. So what exactly does that mean? Well, the main type of rice which is produced in India is the long style of rice grain. As you guys, I, I've told you, I think I've told you guys before, I love rice. Rice is amazing. Like unironically, <laughs> rice is amazing. The main rice export for India is the sort of long, thin basmati grain. <laughs> I'm just drawing like thin grains of rice. And if you guys go to an Indian restaurant and you order some curry or something like that, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be served on a bed of basmati rice. However, India doesn't only produce basmati rice. They also produce a, a shorter, stickier grain of rice that is similar to what you'd see in maybe like a sushi rice. I'm not 100% sure if it's like that sticky and that kind of starchy. But regardless, though, they produce another type of rice and other types of rice. Most of these fall into these smaller, starchier, short grain varieties, and they make up about one quarter of India's rice exports. So now all that short grain rice that comes out of India, that's gone too. 
And right now, they are pretty much only exporting their long grain rice. And I guess I should also <laughs> draw some chickpeas. There's my little chickpeas. They look more like garlic cloves. <laughs> yeah, so they're still, they're exporting those. They're exporting the long grain rice. Lentils, that kind of stuff is still coming out. But now grain's gone and short grain rice is gone. That, that's a lot of food that is no longer being sent outside of India that used to be sent outside of India. It's a lot of food no longer getting out to countries which used to rely on it. And here's the thing, guys. I want to say it's, a, it's not like India is being a dick here, right? India, again, is a huge country with 1.5 billion people who live there. And the Indian government obviously has an obligation to ensure that those 1.5 billion people can get food. And unfortunately, this year, due to particularly poor harvests and disastrous monsoons, a lot of the rice crop in India was unfortunately gutted this year. And as a result, India has again, like I said, had to decide we can't export the same amount of rice that we used to, because if we do, our own people will starve, which unfortunately puts them in a very unenviable position. But they're doing what I think pretty much anybody would do in their scenario, which is looking out for their own. And I remember because when India came out and announced they were, that they were doing this to grain, that they were halting grain exports, the United States came out and chastised them for doing that. And I remember watching an interview, I can't remember if it was the Indian trade minister or the agricultural minister. Anyway, he was one of the high ups in the Indian government and in the Indian cabinet. And he was upset that the United States was saying this. He's like, listen, you guys take a ton of your own corn and you turn it into biofuel. If you guys are so concerned about the price of food, why don't you stop converting corn into biofuel? Because the United States doesn't need more biofuel. They've already got enough energy as it is and instead export that corn to countries that need it. And honestly, I agreed with him. That was, I thought that was a very good point. And I thought that he was right. The United States has more of their own food that they could export if they wanted to too, uh, but instead they don't. Again, they use it and they convert it to things like biodiesel. But regardless though, we are now having a double whammy looking at us in the face here with the grain deal being shut off and it seems like Putin is in no way shape or form enthusiastic to revive this I would honestly be fairly shocked if he did unless he got some major concessions or something like that out of it I don't see him bringing back the grain deal and then of course with India shutting off its rice exports pretty much at the same time this is happening it's going to create a pretty big pinch for people in the region Fortunately, we here over in North America are probably going to be okay. We might see food prices rise a little bit, but nothing substantial. And when it comes to getting your basmati rice, don't worry. I was reading stories and articles about people going crazy and going and buying like 25 bags of, of basmati rice because they heard that India was shutting down rice exports. No, it's not the long grain rice. When you go <laughs> to your Indian restaurant, your favorite Indian restaurant, you're still going to have that nice long grain rice, that's not going anywhere. It's their other types of rice that they are uh, deciding not to export. So I know this is a, a shorter kind of segment. I don't want to dwell too much on this, but it's one of the things that I did want to spend some time bring your guys' attention to because it looks like a lot of what people have been saying is going to happen is finally going to happen. Fortunately, again, we've been able to kick that can down the road for a little bit, but it looks like our time for that is over.
And one of the things you guys may remember is that the last time we had a food increase spike that we're looking at now, the Arab Spring happened. If things do come to fruition, like it seems like they're going to this time, it could get pretty dicey. And with that, I do want to move on to our feel-good story, which I do have time for today, which is going to be the continual utter implosion of Ron DeSantis. Thankfully, though, we didn't do it last week because this little story here, this little breakdown from the New York Times really was illuminating and brought a couple of very in interesting things to the table, I think. Brought a couple of fascinating things to the table and really shows just how DeSantis is collapsing. And before I begin, I want to tell you guys something that may shock you. I am not a fan of the New York Times at all, really. Honestly, I very rarely use them as a source. They're probably, well, they're one of my least favorite mainstream news sources out there is the New York Times. Just don't like them. I've always hated their attitude. They have a very kind of like smug elitist attitude and that they think that they are the greatest philosopher kings on the planet and only their opinions and uh, pontifications matter. But that being said, this is a good article. So I will give them credit on this one. When they do have something good, I do like to talk about it. I do like to cover it. But usually, like I said, New York Times, not my favorite. Don't like to turn to them. Obviously, we have Trump crushing DeSantis and other GOP rivals. This is according to a Times Senate poll. And this poll has a lot of interesting uh, tidbits that we can take away here. Obviously, we can see on the uh, numbers here, I'll just read them out for you in case you guys are listening. We have Trump heading up the pack with 54%. DeSantis behind him substantially with 17%. And then behind him, we have punt, we, punts. <laughs> uh, we have Pence, Scott, and Nikki Haley all tied at 3%. And then running up the pack, we have Ramaswamy and Chris Christie, each tied at two. So pretty much Donald Trump cleaning up the field right now with very little contention. But that is not what I think is the most interesting part about this poll. What I do think is the most interesting part about this poll is how Trump is getting the support of irreconcilably different positions. Let me show you what I mean here. So here we got a example of somebody living in a right-wing delusional bubble here. And we have a quote from David Green, a retail manager in Somersworth, New Hampshire. He says, he might say mean things. I don't know why I gave him a fucking Southern accent. He might say mean things that make all the men cry because all the men are wearing your wife's underpants. And you can't be a man anymore. You've got, you've got a little sissy and cry about everything. But yet at the end of the day, you want results. Donald Trump's my guy. He's proved it on a national level. So again, I don't know where this guy is getting this impression that Donald Trump is making all these people cry all the time. Again, it's just, just people that live in their own delusional right-wing bubble here. But here, very interestingly, we have a couple of points here that reflect against Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis. We have Donald Trump leading in the strong leader category, 69 to 22, gets things done, 67 to 22, able to beat Joe Biden, 20, 58% to 28%. That is fascinating to me. 
considering that Donald Trump lost in the 2020 election, they are willing to put up the same loser against Joe Biden. And they think that he's the guy who has the better chance of beating him than the guy who is un <laughs> who hasn't been tested yet. But then again, um, well, he has been tested and so far he's failing pretty miserably. Fun. <laughs> uh, uh, 54 to 16%. Um, obviously, I, I, yeah, I, I, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, Santos is many things, but fun is not one of them. What is interesting here is that he's, uh, DeSantis is beating Trump on likability by two points and morality by seven points, 45 to 43 and 45 to 37, respectively. These are some interesting numbers, but they're showing that what they want is, so basically this is what they want, a strong man who can trigger the libs. This is their political premise. This is what they're looking for. So let's read some more because we have some great quotes here. We have a lot of people here saying Trump has proven his clout and DeSantis has, but in a much smaller arena. So one of the things like they're saying here is that they don't, Donald Trump has already been the president. And I guess the fact that your person has already been the president does help you see them as presidential in comparison to Ron DeSantis. The truly anti-Trump faction of the Republican electorate appears to hover near one in four GOP voters. Interesting. Hardly enough to dethrone him. I think Donald Trump is going to carry a lot of baggage into the election with him, said Hilda Bula, 68, of Davison County, North Carolina, who supports Mr. DeSantis. DeSantis has had taking on the woke institutions a central piece of his political identity, but when given the choice between a hypothetical candidate who prioritized defeating radical woke ideology or one who was focused on law on our streets and at the border, only 24% said that they would be willing to support the candidate more focused on fighting on the woke issues. That is fascinating to me. Because we've been talking about it on this show for a long time. That the whole wokeness thing is dying. It's overplayed. People don't give a shit about it, by and large. There's like a small core of online people who are really triggered about what's woke and what's not. But the overwhelming majority of people don't give a shit. And even on the Republican side, they're saying, we're done with this woke stuff. We want people who are going to actually focus on our bread and butter priorities. Stuff like law and order. Stuff like immigration. You know, um... And I'm sure if they threw like guns in there too, <laughs> they'd probably put that on there. This is here. This here's my favorite part. This is what I mean by the irreconcilable differences. Equally problematic for DeSantis is that those in the woke focused voters still preferred Trump 61 to 36. So even though this is like DeSantis's thing, I'm the big anti-woke guy. I am the one who's going to fight them the hardest and the strongest. Even the people who fighting the woke is their whole thing they still think trump will do a better job <laughs> just just yeah this desantis is just getting completely clobbered so let's move on here he does not come across as one with humor sandra Ritter says 75 percent or 75 percent <laughs> 75 a retired teacher in farmingdale new jersey said of mr desantis he comes across as a good christian man with a wonderful family but he doesn't have the fire, if you will, that Trump has. That's funny. Uh, yeah, it's a lot, lot of vibes here. So here we go. In the head-to-head -head matchup, Trump was far ahead of Mr. DeSantis among Republicans who accept transgender people 
as the gender they identify with, so they'll use their preferred pronouns, and those who don't, so those who won't. He's winning with both the pro and anti-trans segment of the Republican Party. Among those who want to fight corporations that promote woke ideology and those who prefer to stay out of business, Trump is also winning with both those camps. Among those who want to send more military aid to Ukraine and those who do not, Trump is winning on both those camps. Among those who want to keep Social Security and Medicaid benefits as they are and those who want to take steps to reduce it, Trump leads in both those camps. And even in Trump also leads DeSantis among Republicans who believe abortion should always be legal and those who believe it should always be illegal. Mr. DeSantis designed a strict six-week abortion ban that Mr. Trump has criticized as too harsh, yet Mr. Trump enjoyed the support of 70% of the Republicans who approved of such a measure. What this tells me is that there is deep, deep, ideological divisions in the Republican Party and the right-wing conservative movement in America. But these divisions are papered over by a dictator that they all love. Or, okay, he's not a dictator. By an authoritarian strongman that they all love. He's able to come in and their love and admiration for Trump is able to overcome the fact that certain segments of the party uh, believe that gay people should be allowed to get married and an equal number don't. The same who are pro-choice and pro-life. These people who have these mutually exclusive, incompatible views are supporting the same candidate. And all that I can think here is what happens when Trump is gone. It's very clear that DeSantis does not have the medal to take up the mantle of that sort of Trumpian avatar in politics. What's going to happen when one way or another this guy goes? I think what's going to happen is what happened to Yugoslavia after Tito died, which is that the whole party will balkanize underneath its infighting and incongruencies. And due to the fact that they no longer have that figure who unites them together, they can't overcome these differences. So that's my estimation of what I think will end up happening here. I still do think that Joe Biden is on track to win re-election in 2024. I do think that Donald Trump is on track to regain the Republican nomination in 2024 as well. So yeah, we're headed for a rematch. That's what everything looks like. The only way I can see this changing is somehow we've been hearing rumors and rumblings of even more severe indictments for Donald Trump. Maybe there will become a point when these indictments and the allegations against him are just so severe that he cannot continue and has to drop out somehow. I, I think that he's going to just keep going until basically you drag him out. But yeah, that's the only way I can see Donald Trump not going forward in this process and not winning the nomination. Again, I don't think he's going to win in 2024. Uh, we, we will see. Things have a tendency to change very quickly, very rapidly. But as we stand right now, all signs are pointing to a repeat of 2024. And with that, that is going to bring me to the end of the show. I want to thank you guys for watching. Have to wrap this one up pretty quickly. Don't have too much to go on about at the end here. So this has been the Comrades signing off for now. And until next time, you guys take care.